0: Thank you, Danny. Appreciate that. I have several, of, uh, well, it's not several, but I have a couple of announcements here that I wanted to make sure that you were aware of. One is I had the privilege of uh, speaking with Brother Ayman. As you know, he and his family are now in Israel. And um, he texted me uh, and just wanted to give us an update. Uh, we support them, as you know, uh, for those of you that are part of the church membership uh, as missionaries. And so, um, anyway, we... Um, had a great conversation. We were using that little thing called WhatsApp. Those of you who know what that is, it sounded like we were in the same room together, and it was just a blessing. They did spend some time in the Jordan area. They've all gone through COVID and uh, just had their own struggles with that, but they're of good spirits. And so I just wanted to send their greetings back to us. They have made some some great contacts over there, and uh, so we're just um, praying God's blessings on them. And so he wanted us to pass on, wanted me to pass on that to you, and there's much more that I could say about that. Um, if you have more interest in that, because of uh, various reasons, I won't say more. If you understand their situation, so um, anyway, just wanted to pass on that to you. They are much. Uh, they're thinking about us often, and uh, their hearts are with us often. You know, they have various churches that um, that love them, but uh, we also want to make sure we express our love to them and, and them to you. And so wanted to pass that along to you. The other thing from our family is a big announcement for you. Many of you already know this, but some may not. Our son, Christian, is marrying a young lady by the name of Caroline Shank. You have met her, no doubt. Uh, if you've not, she's a wonderful young lady. She's from over in the Harrisonburg area. Her father, the pastor, she and uh, her mom and dad have been in church life for many, many years. And we're just really excited about their gathering. They're going to be getting married on March the 20th. Uh, but they're having a small wedding. Now that's not to say that it's a rushed wedding, if you understand what I mean by that, okay? So I just felt like I needed to dispel anything that may be entering into your heads, okay? So you know how people think, oh, I wonder what's happening with the pastor's son. No, um, they just are just wanting a, a private wedding, not not private, but just a smaller wedding. But in lieu of that, the reason I'm making this announcement is not only so you know about that, but we want to make sure that you are invited to celebrate in this way Uh, Over this with us. And so on February the 11th, uh, that's a Friday night, I think, right? Uh, At 6 p.m. we're hosting a dinner, and several of you ladies are helping my wife with that. Uh, We're going to have a time of of food and and fellowship, and we want you to all come and and join with us in that celebration. Um, Please let Debbie know, if you will, if you're planning to come and how many people, again, we want as many of your family members to come that want to come, uh, she'll send you an email with the registry if you're interested in, in, in what they have need of, uh, but if not, your attendance being there will be one of the best gifts that they could receive. And so uh, we love you, uh, and you have known Christian for many years, most of you, I guess since you said, honey, since he was eight, is that right? And uh, he's quite a bit older than that now, as you can imagine, getting married, And uh, but anyway, it's something that we wanted to celebrate with you. So please mark your calendar for February the 8th, okay, at 6 p.m. Sorry, February the 11th. Yeah, I'll probably show up on the wrong day. <laughs> February the 11th, thank you, at 6 p.m. That's even what it says in my notes right here. Imagine how that works. Okay, well, thank you, Danny, for your prayer. Thank you, Biagio, for the announcements and worship team. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, please enjoy the coffee back there in the back. Don't get up. We don't want to hear the percolating of that machine while we're trying to deliver the word of the Lord, but you can get it before or after, as Biagio said. And he doing a good job with the announcements. He's got to love Biagio, right? I mean, just, just, well, where'd he go? I wanted him to hear that. He's not even here, in here to hear all that. But anyway, appreciate his work for that. Okay, well, let's just jump into this as we want to conclude, as I said, the uh, third part of the message we started uh, two weeks ago. Because I felt like, uh, and I started that because I felt like as we started our new year, 2022, that we needed to have some reminders, some instruction from the Lord about how to face our culture as God's people. You know, we're not called to just uh, sit inside the church. We live out in the world, uh, with the world. And uh, often the world blesses us greatly. You know, we really benefit a lot from the world in many, many ways. And we want to be, in turn, a blessing as well. So um, let's finish up that. This is going to be part three of How to Live Godly in an Ungodly Culture. And our text has been from 2 Timothy, of which it will be again today. I was excited to hear that the ladies are going to study 2 Timothy. I think that's going to be a great study for them as we've seen just little snippets of it here. Uh, But just for those of you that have missed, uh, let me just remind you that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy who had become, like Titus and others, a a right arm for him almost. Uh, But at this point in Paul's life, he is in prison. This is his second imprisonment. He's not going to get out. He will suffer through his martyrdom at this point, but he is wanting to to lead others in godliness. These men are beginning to take over the ministry for him. And so he gives him instruction, not only for his own personal future survival, as Timothy is serving as a pastor in Ephesus, I think at this point, I have to get my history down correctly there, but I, I know Timothy was in Ephesus as a pastor for a while. I think that's where he still is at this particular point. But also to encourage Timothy to continue on serving the Lord. And and I think it's just a very appropriate letter as a, you might find yourself now, not necessarily as a pastor, of course, but just as God's person, God's people out there wondering, what can I do? How can I make a difference? How, how am I to live in the climate that we're living in. Well, you remember the last time we learned four very critical things right out of the text. Uh, Number one was if you want to live effectively, if you're planning to live effectively, uh, basically we could substitute Timothy's name here, but we're just listening in. You never want to neglect the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given to you. That was what Paul said right in chapter 1, verse 6. I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. In other words, Keep it alive, Timothy. Don't let it die out. We use the illustration of the fire and the uh, the outdoor campfire. If you don't put more coals on it, if you don't put more wood on it, if you don't stoke it, it's going to die. And it's the same. The same is true with us spiritually. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, remember the giftedness that God has given to you. Now, I don't know other than the gift of preaching and teaching. I'm not sure exactly what gift Paul's talking about here. You can read about the spiritual gifts that God gives to all His children in 1 Corinthians 12. Go back and read that chapter and you'll see very clearly what Paul's talking about, at least as far as spiritual gifts go. But if nothing else, he's saying, Timothy, you're God's man. Don't let the gift that God has provided you with or given to you die. And that's where we were on that number one. Number two was you must live your life framed by biblical truth, framed by biblical truth. And I don't know how you want to picture that in your mind. I see the outline of a picture frame, and there are borders, there are edges, and so we want to make sure we're staying inside the construct of God's Word. That's how we live effectively in this life. Basically saying you need to live your life based on what God says, not by how you feel, how you think, what your responses in your own heart are about. All those things have their place. But if we really want to be effective and we really want to be the people that God wants us to be, we, we look to God's word not as a suggestion book but as the very source of life for us. And that's very, very critical. So don't let your emotions drive you into all the wrong areas. Build your life around the word of the Lord. That's what we try to do every Sunday and throughout our lives. Number three, we said you must protect God's word at all costs. In other words, if you believe that the framework of life is the Bible, it is God's word to us, then you must protect it. Paul was willing to give his life. And all the other prophets, Jesus said, gave their life as a result of their adherence to the word of God so strongly. They protected it. They did what was necessary to keep it in the hearts of people, to keep it accurate so that it could do its work. Paul would say in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in a wonderful statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because in it is the word of God that teaches us that all men can be redeemed for eternity if they hear it and obey it and, and live their life by it. Finally, we said, if you understand and believe all that to be true, and again, we're kind of following Paul's logic with Timothy here then pass it on. Don't just be a hoarder. And we said last time that that's often how people live their life as God's people. Uh, they, they hoard it. They, they're comforted by the fact that they receive it, that it's good food for them, and it helps them in their own personal life, but often they hoard it and don't share it with others. Well, God is basically saying to Paul, to Timothy, don't be embarrassed by it. Uh, don't be ashamed of it, but all you do... Do it for the sake of others because the eternal souls of men and women are dependent on your deliverance and your life of this gospel message. And people do notice. People do take notice of of what happens. There's a a guy in our church that, um, excuse me, in our neighborhood um, who lives by himself. Uh, I've invited him to church numerous times. I hope he'll come one day. Um, I've tried to befriend him a little bit over the years. He doesn't have any family. Uh, No brothers or sisters. Mom and dad are gone now. He's retired. And so one of the things I like to do is, uh, and I kind of have fun doing this, is I get out on my little uh, 1985 Sears Craftsman mower that has no hood on it and my own uh, fabricated exhaust system, which I tried to make it look like a hot rod and it looks like anything but. (laughs) But um, I have a plow that's on the front of it, just a little blade. And I like to get out there and just make sure our family can get out, but so other people can get out. And so our, I take care of our cul-de-sac and stuff when the snow comes. And so I was out there just the other day this week and um, Steve was out and he, we were kind of helping cut a couple trees down. And I said, Steve, you want me to plow your driveway? And he says, no, 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 it's fine. I don't have anywhere to go. And so I began to plow some other parts and I look back and he's in his car and he's trying to get out and he's stuck. And so I went back over and I said, hey, Steve, said, you sure you don't want me to plow? And he says, well, I guess go ahead. And so I pushed some of it out. And as I was clearing the path in front of his car, he just came over to me behind my tractor. and It's just a little lawnmower. And he's just shaking my shoulders. And he says, you're such a man of God. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, you know, all I was doing was plowing some snow. I was just trying to help a neighbor. Uh, but in my mind, and I'm not the model, you know that I always say that to you. I don't want you to see me as the model. Jesus is our model. But the emphasis here is that people do watch, they do see, they know what's going on. And and I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But um, even in a simple situation like that, um, people know that you're serving the Lord. And and so that's what we're talking about here. Okay, so with that in your mind, in the background, uh, hopefully you've heard the message. If not, you can go back and listen to it online. Uh, Let's jump into the next part for today. So I'm going to have you stand, as we always do, and uh, look at our text today. It's right out of Timothy again. Very familiar passage. Most of you will be very familiar with it. But if you're not, uh, listen carefully. And we'll just use this as our jumping in point. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All right, you may be seated. Now, I chose this as the starting point because it really is another foundational verse for life, a foundational for why we do what we do and why we are what we are. If you remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, back when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember this, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, Jesus was quoting an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, who was Moses speaking to the children of Israel as he was leading them into the promised land. And that's the message that he gave them. And so the Lord's point is, even in his own sermon, is that Scripture is so tied to God, and listen to this carefully. Scripture is so tied to God that when Scripture speaks, it is God who is speaking. It is that close in its purpose and in its context. So what you hold in your laps, what you have on your phones, whatever it might be, is a translation of the original languages, yes, which were the inerrant writings of God breathed out into the hearts of his writers who were not inspired people themselves. His word was inspired through them to write down his instructions so that we would have a blessed life and so that we would know him. And what he wants us to understand and what Paul is reminding Timothy of is that every word, Timothy, of God's word is as if God himself is speaking it. You and I, beloved, have the privilege every time we open the Bible to hear God speaking to us. And that's the way we should view it. That's what the Lord said. That's what Paul is reiterating here. And listen, listen, in fact, to how John the Apostle would make this clear in his own gospel writing of John chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word. Many of you know this passage. Word is capitalized. He's referring to something... And in case, in fact, he's referring to the Lord himself. Watch this. The word was with God and the word was God. Verse 2, and, what, and he, there's the personal pronoun there, was in the beginning with God. So we go from this, in our mind, seems to be this intangible or rather this, um, this uh, letter language kind of book form thing that you hold in your lap to the Lord telling us, no, it is far more than that. This is the written physical presence of myself. That's how powerful this is. And we know that because in verse 14, John would say the word who is God, who was God, who was in the beginning with God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. John says, I lived with him. I talked with him. I felt him. I saw him in action. And I'm telling you, it was his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I'm saying all of this as a reminder and really pointing to our next point of how to live in the culture because of all that the Lord has done for us through his word, we are to give God our very best in everything that we do. That's number five. In other words, if this is the word of the Lord, and this is God speaking literally to us, yes, in written form, but yet from the Spirit of God, we are to give God our very best in everything we do. And that's what Paul says to Timothy in verse 15 of chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Paul was instructing Timothy to diligently study God's Word. Very simple. This is not hard to understand. In his context, to preach it and to teach it accurately. We know why that's important, because if you don't preach and teach accurately, people are going to get all kinds of confused hearts and and confused uh, states of life. But this should really be the heart and the manifestation of every believer. Not only to Timothy as a preacher, but really it should be word to us that says, I need to be a person in this culture, in this ungodly culture, that is handling the word of God accurately. That should be one of our greatest desires, if not our greatest desire. Not only spending time every day in the word, but making sure we understand the word. Now interestingly, as much as this is an Awana verse, one of the things I, when I was a leader I thought was important was, and this was tough with younger kids because kids learn by rote memory, which is good, it has its place. But one of the things we also wanted to make sure of is that they began to understand what they were memorizing. Right? It's, a, it's one thing to learn something, but it's another thing to really understand what you're memorizing. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, make sure you understand what God is saying. Study it. How else are you going to live by it and pass it on correctly if you don't? Pretty simple logic. And you need to do that because God wants you to use the word of the Lord to answer people's questions, and people have questions. Now, I can't say everybody has questions, but most people that I encounter, at least on a basis that I have any kind of relationship with, are having questions about life. More and more am I being questioned about answers for life, hungrier now than I've experienced in the years of the ministry that I've been in. In fact I had I told you this I think a couple weeks ago, I had two people outside of our church call me and ask me to to meet with me just to talk about some things scripturally about their lives because they needed to navigate some things. Well, again, I'm not the necessary the great one here. That's not what I'm saying here, but the, the point I'm making is that they had questions about their life. And they needed to know from somebody that knew some things about Scripture. I I just had my cousin call me this uh, last week and is struggling with a couple things and wanted to know what my thoughts were about what God was saying about a particular issue. Again, I'm not the model here. I'm simply saying that we all should do our very best in our service to the Lord if we truly believe this is the Word of God breathed out to us from Him every time We read it. But sadly, most Christians, many at least, are very lazy when it comes to Bible study. That's just reality. Or they just don't care enough to put enough time into it to make a difference in their lives. Or they think they know enough and can get by. And there are many people that are like that. And I'm not talking about doing what I do. I'm not saying that to each of you. I'm not saying that you should spend all of your waking hours studying the word of the Lord. You give me a great privilege uh, to study each week, to have something to deliver to you. I'm not talking about doing what I do, but I'm talking about the more time that you spend in God's word, and this should just be logical, the more confident you become. The more you take in the word of the Lord, the more you're able to be confident in what you feel and what you think and in helping other people. In fact, the only reason people, I think we could say this justifiably based on everything I just said, the only reason people really get nervous about things in the Bible when it comes to the subject of the Bible is because they don't know it well. Well, that's just logical, right? I mean, we get nervous about subjects and don't talk about subjects that we're not confident in. We just don't do it. We get either fearful or we just back of it altogether, and, and, and it just doesn't work well for us. I tell a little funny story on our older son, uh, Nathan, as he's been putting together, working hard on um, getting his family to move into a new home that they purchased down in the North Carolina area. And so he's been working feverishly, really, night and day uh, to to erect, if you will. It's a house that's already built. I don't mean it in that way, but put together doing electrical work and plumbing and all kinds of stuff. He's learning a tremendous amount. Well, the other day he called me because he was working on some new lights that he was putting in and, and I have just enough electrical experience to be really dangerous. You know, if you call me, I'll help you burn your house down, um, more quickly than a guy who's licensed. Um, so, but he called me and he said, dad, I'm trying to figure out how to hook up these particular lights on two different switches. And he was wanting to change this switch to something else. And, and so we began to look at it. I was on FaceTime from my office and, and uh, he, was, he was saying, okay, I think if we do this, 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 and this. And I was telling him some thoughts. And I said, I think if you do this, this will work. Well, he says, okay, I'll do that and I'll call you back. Well, it wasn't 30 seconds later. My phone lit up and he says, I'm never touching electrical work again. And I said I said, okay, what's the problem? What happened? He says, so I did that and sparks flew everywhere. <laughs> well, well, so I said, okay, well what happened? He said, No, I'm not ever touching it again. It's done. I'm calling an electrical contractor. And I said to him, I said, all right, well, wait, wait, let's let's talk about what happened, you know, and, and we walked our way through it and, and, and after a little bit we got it figured out. And and so the point I'm just simply trying to make is that he was extremely nervous About doing this because he's never done that kind of stuff. I've done a lot of it over the years, and so I was much more confident in in my understanding. And that's all I'm simply trying to say here when it comes to Scripture. If this is truly the Word of God, you don't need to be intimidated by it as long as you study it, you spend time in it. God will reveal His truth to you, not in some mystical, fanciful way. He may show you some unique things that other people don't see, but for the most part, He's going to do what He's done with everybody else in history but you gotta spend your time in it, okay? Now, in addition to all that, let's translate into this thought. If we're gonna do our diligence in the word of the Lord, I think God is also saying, do everything that you do with as much detail and energy as you possibly can because you're doing it for the Lord. Listen again to how Paul says this, be diligent, be diligent. And what that word means is be zealously persistent if you wanna be technically accurate. Be so zealous and persistent that you're giving everything your maximum effort. I used to work on a horse farm years ago and one of the things that the owner, my boss, used to say to me, even though my sole job was either to paint fences or to mow the fields or clean out the stalls, and you understand what's entailed with cleaning out horse stalls, right? You're on the other end of the nice part of the horse. Do I need to elaborate on that? I think you get the picture, right? Well, I wish I could give you the smell to go along with the picture, (laughs) but you get it. He would look at me often and he would say, Bruce, I know this is just a stall, but make it look like somebody cares. He would say that to me often, and I I remember that phrase has never left me, and I think God was purposefully putting it in my mind because he knew what my life would be like later as a Christian. I was not a believer at the time. I mean, I was a religious person, but I was not a believer. But now that I'm a true believer, I know that God is saying the same thing as Paul is saying here to Timothy. Whatever you do, do it to the best of your effort because you belong to me. Make your life look like you care about what's happening. Listen to what God says. This is uh, Jordan will know this verse because it's a camp verse where we have gone over the years. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Corinthians 10.31 We say it every time at this particular camp we're getting ready to have a meal. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Boy, it doesn't get any more simple than that, does it? Paul really encompasses everything in life right there. Practically, he's simply saying, I don't care what subject you're talking about. Do it all for the glory of God. Because you belong to him. And so lots of subjects come out of that. If you're a teacher, give it 100%. If you sing on the worship team, give it 100%. If you lead the children's ministry, give it 100%. If you play an instrument, give it 100%. Whatever it is, even in your own life, it doesn't matter what the subject is, give it 100%. If it's going to school, give it 100%. Well, in my case, my 100% was about a D or C effort, uh, um, grade. Okay, well, you know, if that's the best, then that's the best. If it's working for someone, give it your best. Here's what Paul says about that in Ephesians 6. Different letter, same kind of instruction. Slaves, now in the context there, that would have been a literal slave, a person who didn't have a choice. But he's trying to help retrain their brain to understand that, yeah, you may be a slave, but you're really a child of the king. And so he says to us, we would translate this as a, a employee versus, or, and also an employer. So he says, slaves or employees, be obedient to those who are your masters or employer, according to the flesh. In other words, your daily life, this is what you do, whether fear or excuse me, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And what he's simply saying there is that if you work for somebody, don't worry so much about the fact that you work for them, but remember always in the back of your mind that it's really Christ you're serving in that job. Verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, and this really rings to me because I did a lot of construction work in my growing up years, and there were many times where I could hear the guys saying, Oh, boss is coming, boss is coming, get up, get up, get up, let's, 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 let's do let's let's make it look like we're working. that's what Paul's talking about here. Don't just live your life in the moments for Christ when you think he's watching, or your employer when you think they're watching, but with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. You see, so the point is really well made. But too often Christians in my opinion at least off, operate more like slugs instead of saints. We want everything to be done for us. In other words, people can be very lazy as Christians. But God says, you can't be lazy. You got to remember that you're in a war. You're in a battlefield. You're 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 fighting for the souls of men and women. You're fighting for the eternal destiny of of people. And so don't ever forget that. Every little detail makes a difference. This is what I was saying earlier, people watch us. They really do. You may not know it, but people do watch. They know that you profess to be a believer. They may not understand what that really means, but they know you're a church person. They they know you're religious. You don't have to tell them that. They can tell by the way you are, the way you conduct yourself. They know how you perform your actions. They also can tell what kind of Christian you are by how well you do what you do. Do you give it your 100%? And so I'm just simply saying what I think Paul is saying here to Timothy. Timothy, look, be conscious of how you come across. Give it everything in your life, not because... You think somebody's watching, but know that God is watching, that you're doing this for him, and you're serving the God of all creation. So 100% of your language, the way you speak, the mannerisms, the presentation of yourselves, no matter what you're doing. Listen, one of the greatest... um, Enjoyments that I personally have and my wife personally has is not just watching sports, but we love watching UVA basketball especially. You know why? Yes, because we love the kids and it's not because they're the greatest team right now, so that's not what I'm talking about, but because of Tony Bennett. Now, he's just a man. But if you listen to the commentators, it happened yesterday if you were watching the game, the coach evidently, and I don't know much about him, but the coach evidently for the Tar Heels is the same way. He's just taken over for Roy Williams, uh, who retired last year. Uh, but they were asking one of the players on the Tar Heels team, and they said, have you ever heard coach so-and-so curse? And he said, oh, no, never. Well, later the commentator said, "The two, some of the two most wonderful people on the planet are those two coaches right there. Now, they didn't bring up their Christianity. They didn't bring up anything about God, nothing like that. But I know... Tony Bennett enough to know that he is a man who serves God. And I know that because I have friends of mine who know him very well. And so, again, I'm simply saying you may not think the world is taking notice of you, but they do. And so Paul is saying to us, through Timothy even, give God all you give him, 100%. Don't give God a bad name. Because you say to somebody that you serve him, but you don't really give him your 100%. In my mind, and again, I think um, kind of mechanically, tangibly, I was thinking about an illustration, and I thought, to me, Christians should be like good mechanics. I'm talking about mechanics at a garage. Many of us have been to garages where we've taken our car in or a truck or whatever it is and come out only to find that the problem wasn't fixed. And you take it back, and, you're like, you know, and it's kind of like you have to fix it instead of them fixing it. That's a bad mechanic. A good mechanic says, okay, let me drive your car. You say you're hearing some squeaking coming from the front wheels. We probably better check a few things. And they check and say, uh uh-huh, you know what the real problem is? Your wheel is about to fall off because thus and thus was about to happen. So we're going to replace whatever needs to be fixed in order for you to be safe and feel comfortable when you're driving down the road. And that's a good deal, right? I think Christians should be the same way. We should be examining all of our lives, all of our lives, all the facets of our life to make sure that we're really giving God everything that we can give him. But too often Christians just kind of get by. They just kind of plug and do this or that instead of doing what's really important. So God is saying, be diligent to know my word and everything else in your life. Or You may find yourself on the side of the spiritual road, broken down, and not really having any way to help yourself. So don't just live with the idea that that's good enough. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that Jesus didn't say, you know what, Lord, Father, that's good enough. Think about that. What if Jesus had said, "Eh, that's good enough. I mean, I came and I lived in front of them, but I'm not doing the cross thing they'll be all right. They'll get by. No. And we're saying thank you, Jesus, right? All right, let's go to the next one. If all of the other things are true, then guard your heart. If you're going to guard the word of God, you also need to guard your heart. Notice what Paul says to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 22. Flee from youthful lusts. Flee from youthful lust. Now the word flee there is where we get the word fugitive. A fugitive is somebody who doesn't just one time flee, but a person who lives their life on the run. That's the definition of a a fugitive. So Paul is saying, Timothy, be like a spiritual fugitive and flee the lustful temptations that come against you all the time and continually flee them. Don't just think you've got it covered over or you've got it figured out and you've won the game. No, you've got to guard your heart so that you're never weighted down with the problem. It may be there, just like something broken on an automobile, but you know what you've got to do to fix it and you work to fix it. Stay on top of this. And now we could say that he's just simply talking about what we would commonly think When we hear the word lust, he's probably talking about a, a sexual temptation. He could very well be talking about that. Obviously, Timothy was a young man, could have had some temptations in the church. But I think it extends far beyond that to things like pride. That's a useful lust, right? I mean, you take young men, particularly in Timothy's case, who have been given the task of serving a church and, you know, pride has this, way of coming in I'm the leader and I can be in charge here and so pride manifests itself in a lot of different ways or desire for wealth or or power or some other sinful ambition he could be talking about jealousy uh, envy uh, arguments where you always have to be right and nobody's ever like that right none of you ever want to get into arguments where you feel like you always got to be right even the quiet people of the world want to be right They may not verbalize it in their uh, audible way, but internally they want to be right. Or he may be talking about control of some situation and whatever. It doesn't matter. Flee those things continually. Recognize in your own heart your tendencies to follow after certain things, whatever they may be. And if they're not aligning with God's word, which we've already said is the framework, then flee those things. Be constantly fleeing them. Spurgeon said, and this is my favorite quote, you've heard me say it many times before, but temptations are like the birds of the air. You can't keep them from flying overhead, right? But you can sure keep them from landing in your head. It's a great picture, great illustration. So I want to say, if you're going to keep the temptations of life from landing in your head, you've got to wear a spiritual hat. You say, well, what kind of spiritual hat is that? Well, glad you asked because Paul gives us a couple things here to help Timothy to see what he needs to pay attention to to keep from falling into the sinful lust trap. Look at the rest of the verse. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just say don't do this but then he he does always give you the way out of it? Number one, let's look at a couple of these here. Righteousness run to righteousness. And he says, basically, and again, I'm translating in my own way here. You do that not by becoming some spiritual hermit. You know, some people think that, oh, the only way I can be righteous is to stay away from everything that's ungodly and everybody that's ungodly. And that's why I don't come to church. That was supposed to be funny. Some people think that they just are righteous by some mystical experience. Oh, I had this happen to me, and. Man, look at what God has done with me, and so I'm far better than you. Or by deciding to turn over a new leaf, you know, I'm going to be better. I'm going to be more righteous. Making a New Year's resolution. That's the time of year for this, right? Some people think that's going to help me be more righteous. No, that's not what God says, though. Remember, we're living our life framed in His Word because it is God breathed to us. And so the psalmist says, How can, and this is Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? Here it is. By keeping it according to your word. What's he saying? You want to know how to live a pure life? You want to know how to live a righteous life? Then follow what God says. Look at his word. And that comes from the Old Testament, which then will lead to a life of faith. Because faith is born out of trust and experience. In other words, when we see God doing his work, through our trust in his word, our faith grows, doesn't it? How many times have you said, you know, it's really hard for me to give this money, but I'm going to give it and I'm going to trust God. And God just blesses you incredibly because of your faithfulness. And then you go, you know what? I can, I can do that again. I can do it again. And I can do it again. And I can do it again. And you grow. Paul goes on to say, now also pursue love, which is to love all people. He didn't say to give in to their sin. He's not talking about that or agree even with their lives, but that you love people because they are creations of God. They may not be children of God, but they are all creations of God and love covers a multitude of sins. That's exactly what Peter said. I'll read the verse in just a minute. This is what Peter said exactly to the church in his context in Rome when Nero now was under as uh, le- it was in leadership and, and threatening the church, here's what he said, above all, this is his final words to the church in this message of the first letter. Now he'll go on to write a second letter, but he says at the end of it all, out of all the things that I've said to you, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The word fervent is a word used of an athlete who is straining his or her muscles If you've done any kind of athletic endeavors, you know that your muscles get very tense and tight when they're under load. They're straining to do their job. So Paul is simply saying every Christian should be like being or every act of a Christian should be like an athlete being in competition where every spiritual fiber of your muscles are being exercised and they're under the weight of what's happening. In this case, loving people especially those in the church. That should be a no-brainer. We should exemplify our love to one another. But in the picture of the culture, you and I should love people if for no other reason than they are creations of God, even if we don't agree with them. Thirdly, he says, pursue peace. Because if you don't pursue peace, you're going to have trouble, right? I mean, trouble's going to come anyway. And it's going to come because, first of all, we're all sinners. We all bring our own source of trouble. You walk into the room and you've already got trouble because there are sinners there, right? But secondly, we have trouble because people are more interested in pursuing their own interests in life instead of forgiving and repenting and loving each other through their faults. And again, I didn't say letting people live in their sin and not pointing it out, but... Paul's simply saying work hard to live with each other in peace as much as possible as it depends on you. And that comes from Romans 12. I've said this many times before as well. Sometimes our pursuit of peace is that the best thing I can do in this situation is you stay over there and I'll stay over here. Well, that's far better than being in a quarrelsome situation and thinking we can argue our point and get get everything out that we think is right when the other person's not willing to meet us halfway. Well, it may be, as far as you're concerned, Paul says, to the church in Rome at least, here's how you handle that. Listen, in fact, I read this as I was studying through this, and I thought this is so beautiful from the Lord as he's following, he, Paul, is following up this same thought of pursuing and running from youthful lusts. He says this in verse 24 and 26, or through 26, the Lord's bondservant, talking to Timothy, Must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Able to teach, patient when wronged. Listen to this. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. With gentleness. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, it's like Paul is transitioning in his thought here. Maybe God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. What's he saying? He's saying, as you are patient and loving and kind, maybe, just maybe, God in his own divine providence will grant that person an open heart and mind so that they'll hear the truth of God and they'll surrender their life to him. The point is, God is using you, God is using me in order to reach them. And he goes on to say, and maybe they'll come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has been holding them captive to do his own will. That's where the ungodly world is. They're being held captive by Satan. That's what God says. But when we live our life as fugitives from the lustful passions of our souls, the world takes notice of that. And maybe without quarreling with them and bickering with them over what's right and wrong, they see our lives and hear us, and they'll be willing to open their hearts if God gives them that, right? So he finally says, and then with gentleness, that can be translated meekness. This is a very interesting thought here as he says this. You know what meekness is? It's simply power under control. Some people think it's weakness, but it's not. Meekness is just the opposite. It's that person who says, I got this. I'm not worried. It's okay. Okay. I'm not going to give up, I'm not giving in, but I'm going to deal with the person or the situation in a way that's correcting and encouraging at the same time. One of the examples that fits that is, again, back to the farming days that I was on. Sometimes the owner would bring in new horses and they were little young colts and he would take them out in the sand lot. And, and you've heard of breaking a horse, right? Well, the cowboys used to do this in the old days. They would take that wild horse and they would throw a saddle on it and they'd ride it until the horse was just broken. Well, there's a difference between a broken horse that's no good anymore because their spirit is crushed than a horse that understands there's someone greater than he is or it is. That's meekness. We understand that there is a God who is greater than we are, but yet we don't live under the plight of him in the sense that we're crushed to the point where we're no good, but we live under his guidance and his leadership Encourage and strength because we know he's in charge therefore we can go do what we need to do and be the people that we need to be and so all of those are just little snippets of how to get past some of those youthful lusts now quickly let's go through these last couple here and we'll be done again thinking through this this way if all these others are true Timothy here's what I want you to focus on don't ever give up that's number seven Never give up. 2 Timothy 3, you'll remember in the very first message I opened with, in fact, that whole message was about where the world is going. If you just look at chapter 3, Paul will say, Timothy, look, it's not going to get better. Here's what's going to happen it's going to go from bad to worse, to worse, to worse, to worse, to worse. And that would leave anybody in the doldrums of life, right? And so he quickly follows that because he understands the human heart and he understands Timothy's timidity. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, You, however, Timothy, listen, listen, son. You, even though the world is falling apart, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. And those were learned by your grandmother and your mother, he would go on to talk about. Because you know that those are the things which leads to wisdom and helps people to understand what salvation is really all about. And you can see that in verse 15. So basically saying, for you, Timothy, keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. Satan's going to try to do everything he can to try to deceive you. He's going to throw lie after lie after lie at you. He's going to want you to live by your feelings and your emotions, but don't do it. Live by the truth of God's word, and which your convictions will come from, because God has said it. Because he is the God of all gods, and nothing will st- sway him or stray him from his own truth. And so you hold on to that. As I went through this, I thought of a little phrase that I've thought of personally many times over the years I heard concerning um, champion athletes, and that is, quitters never win and winners never quit. Right? Isn't that true? Quitters never win, but winners never quit. If you've watched sports as much as we have over the years, you would think we would be national champions in our own home just as much sports as we've watched over the years. But if you've ever watched championship teams, and I'm talking about the teams that are real champions, they can have a game where they might be 20, 25 points down. They don't worry. They just keep at it. And they come back and eventually many times over win the game, right? But the teams that are not championship caliber are the teams that get down and they just go further down and further down. And you can kind of start seeing it on the sidelines. They start fighting with each other. Uh, and, and I don't have to go through all that. You understand what I mean. So the point is, God is saying, look, Timothy, remember this. Keep going because you've already won. You're on the championship team. You're a champion. The game is done. It's all over. Don't lose sight of that. Let that be your motivation. Now, I understand the ramifications of what I'm saying here. And uh, let me just kind of give you another illustration to help you see through this and how best to act in life. Debbie and I were at the state convention a couple of weeks ago and the guy who's the North American Mission Board president gave an illustration that we just really loved. He was talking about himself and how he's such a sports fanatic. And he was saying, you know, my wife caught on pretty quickly in our marriage that when I watched my favorite teams that I'd get pretty fired up. And I I was not fun to be with. And so when the DVRs and stuff started coming out, I started recording the games. And I would ask my wife before I would watch the game, did we win or not? And if we lost, I didn't watch it. But if we won the game, I sat down and I watched the game. And he says, you know, I never got fired up. I never got heart palpitations. I never wondered what was going to happen next. My little dog just sat there right beside me and we had snacks and we just had a great time watching the game. Why? Because I knew we won. I didn't need to get all fired up. And I thought, oh, what a great illustration of the Christian life. Listen, we won. We're just watching the video, right? Right? <laughs> I mean the mystery of God is is that we're living the video while the video's already done. Now, I don't understand how God does that. That's why he's God. But the reality is you and I can face the world and all the trauma of it with great courage because our hope is in the word of the Lord who has completed everything and he's called us. He chose us from the foundation of the world. To be a part of his family, and so we go out in confidence, learning everything we can learn, knowing that we win. Boy, I don't know any better story than that. Hollywood can't beat that, right? That's what Paul's reminding Timothy of. Timothy, look, get your eyes off of what's going on. Don't worry about the ungodliness of the culture. You're God's man. He's got you where He wants you. Now pay attention. To what he wants from you. In fact that leads us to the final point. All you really have to do is please him. Number eight is live your life to an audience of one. Live your life to an audience of one. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. This is as Paul's closing out his final thoughts. And you can just imagine Paul as he's sitting in this cold dark dungeon. About to give his life and sacrifice for his Lord. He has Timothy on his mind and he's just thinking and praying through what am I going to say to this young man? And so at the end of it all, he says here, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. In other words, the most important thing Timothy could do was pay attention again to the very foundation of it all, God's word. Pay attention, son. Deliver it with your full heart, trusting me because God has called you. He's created you to be a preacher and a teacher who puts his trust in God's word to put it on display no matter the situation. No matter what's going on in life. That's why he says be instant, in season and out. What he's saying to Timothy is, is in in your moments of conversation with people, when people have questions, you're to go, hmm, I don't know the answer to that, but let's see what God says. That's what it means to be instant, in season and out of season. It doesn't mean that you have the answer right at the moment, but that you're always going back to God and saying, God, what do you say about this? Your word is the framework. It's everything. I just need to see, Lord, what you want me to say from this. Sometimes that can be tough, depending on the setting. Sometimes depending on the audience, that can be really tough. But God has called us to that. And the reason Timothy could keep going is because he only had to please God. He's the only one. And that's all you and I have to do. God is the only one we have to please. That's why we've said often uh, over the years that, look, the only one who really matters in this situation is God and his thoughts, right? It really only matters what he thinks. It's as if Paul is saying, Timothy, listen, you are in the continual presence of God and he is constantly with you. You remember that from Genesis 15? the message God gave to Abraham when Abraham was to receive the joyous news that he would be the father of many nations Abraham I'm sure was a little bit intimidated by that he was an old man Genesis 15 after these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying do not fear Abraham I am a shield to you the same message to Moses as the people watched the approaching Egyptian army we would never we've never been in that kind of situation, but can you imagine the terror and dread of those people as they saw the Egyptians approaching them as their backs were against the Red Sea? Moses would say in Exodus 14, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Folks, listen, there's coming a day where the ungodly culture will never be seen by us again. This really was a picture of eternity. He's not only talking about the salvation that we receive in Christ as Jesus is the one who parts our flesh from our spirit and gives us a new life, but he's really saying there's coming a day where the Lord is going to gather together all the ungodly of the world and he's going to separate them from us forever and we will never see them again. But be, a, be full of courage as God does so. It was the same message to Joshua as Joshua was leading the people into the promised land. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's the same message to Isaiah in Isaiah 41. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious and look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And it's the same message that Jesus gave his disciples as they were about to watch him ascend into heaven In Matthew 28, at the very end of of the time there with them, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's the same message that God is saying to you and me. I'm with you. All you have to do is please me. And I couldn't help but sneak this last one in this morning, and that is to be filled with grace for all people. Timothy was told in the very last part here in verse 22, in fact, the last verse of the chapter of the book, the letter, Paul closes out by saying, The Lord be with you, with your spirit. Grace be with you. That word grace translates or can be translated into the word kindness. Basically saying, may kindness be with you. May the kindness of God continually flow to you, but listen to this, and from you. That's what Paul's saying. Let kindness flow from you. And beloved, listen, our world needs kindness. Our world needs grace. Not just kindness that's founded upon just some emotional feeling and all that we've talked about this morning, but kindness that is founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have the truth. We know his sacrifice for us. So as you go through your days, as we approach, and now we're well into already, 2022, our thoughts should be to remember that people are sinful. People just do sinful things because people are lost. And they're on their way to hell unless the Lord rescues them. So we are to be examples of grace. Speak truth, be loving, all the things we've mentioned here. we will go back and repeat all of that. But just understand that that may be all the kindness, you may be all the kindness that they receive in this life. But you can give it to them. And maybe, just maybe, God in his own divine providence will use you and me in a way to help them see the truth and come to a saving knowledge of himself. So, in my mind, I closed all this out by thinking, what kind of motto can I live life with and it's very simply just jumped out at me saying we're to be God-driven people God-driven people you know how mottos go you can change them all you want something new every year but I think that's a good motto for our 2022 year that we be God-driven people in everything I really feel like that's what Paul was saying to Timothy in his dying days his last words and so let's be wise people and hear what the spirit is saying to us Let's be a church that's God-driven in everything that we do. Amen? Amen. All right. As we close now and we prepare ourselves for communion, um, I'm not going to read the text this morning. We understand the text from 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul the Apostle gave to the church there just as he had been instructed from exactly watching what... The gospel writers talk about from their own gospel writings of the last night in the upper room and I think it's fitting for us to remember in that little cup that you have there that the dedication of our hearts is based on the fact that the Lord gave his life and he gave him his body for us so let's pray and I'm going to pause for a minute and I'll give you an opportunity to just just talk to the Lord Thank him for a new year. Thank him for a last year as tough as it was. Thank him for the struggles that you're finding right now. Because listen, remember, don't ever forget this, beloved. We've already won. We've already won. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that guides us. The truth of your word that is buried deep in us because your spirit lives in us. So, Father, I pray that as we approach these days ahead, we we know in our humanness we don't know what's ahead. Just like (laughs) last Saturday, New Year's Day, or whenever it was, it was 70-some degrees, and in a couple hours we had a snowstorm that shut us all down. Who in the world knew? Well, you did. And you know everything that's coming even yet today. So, Father, we go into the future without fear, without discouragement. Knowing, yes, in our flesh we feel the pains and the pressures of life, but we also know the truth. And so at this moment we take this little cracker and we we eat it in celebration of you who gave your life for us to finish the game, to finish life. And so I would ask, Lord, that you would help each person who knows you, and trust you as their God to take part in that little wafer right now. So, would you do that just now? Paul reminded the believers there in Corinth of just what Jesus had said that this juice is the symbolic representation of the blood of Christ. Father, may our people, your people, Laurel Hill, take part in this today, remembering your sacrifice of life and your resurrection so that we too might have resurrected eternal life. So would you take part in the juice right now? Lord, thank you for giving to us the eternal privilege of taking deep breaths, for being able to just unlift the weight that's on us often and rest in the knowledge that we are safe with you. Thank you for being eternally in control and forever being God with no one ever to remove you from your throne. Lord, we are needy people, but we're thankful that you know our needs. We're thankful that you know them even before we ask you of them. And so by faith, we trust you according to your word to deliver us from the things that we can't deliver ourselves from and help us to navigate the things that we need help navigating with. And Lord, above all, help us to love one another through these difficult times. And perhaps you'll open the hearts of those that don't know you by our example. And so we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord's blessings to you all.